Hello, my praying people, and welcome to episode four in this summer series I'm doing on the Prayer Clinic podcast called The Truth About Women. My name is Leanne McCoy. I'm the founder of the Prayer Clinic Ministry. The Prayer Clinic Ministry is an intercessory prayer ministry that operates in the local church like the minute clinics operate in your local pharmacies or your local drugstores. If your church does not have a vibrant prayer ministry, the kind of ministry that mobilizes your people to pray, then I want to encourage you to check out the prayer clinic ministry at my website, prayerclinic.com. We've got an open house coming up in just a few weeks toward the end of July, and it would be a great time for you to jump in your car and take a road trip over to Middle Tennessee, come worship with us at Thompson Station Church, and see how our prayer clinic ministry operates. Um, If you are in a church that has a vibrant and growing prayer ministry, I would love for you to get in touch with me because I want to connect with other prayer leaders who are experiencing the power of God in response to the praying church. I tell you what, if there's anything we need in our world today, my friends, it's for our churches to be praying. So that's my little bit about the prayer clinic ministry. I don't want you to forget what I'm passionate about as if you ever would. (laughs) And now I'm ready to um, invite you in to this episode number four, where we're going to answer the question, a pretty bold question, is God a misogynist? Okay, my praying people, I was so hoping to be able to introduce you to a very scholarly woman for the discussion that I want to have in this episode number four of our series in The Truth About Women, but um, neither of my, my people that I had reached out to were able to make it to this interview, and hopefully, perhaps in the future, I'll be able to snag one of them and have a conversation with them, but I didn't want to miss the um, subject itself and decided just to address it myself using the content that I got from a woman named Mary Wilson. She is a women's ministry leader at a Presbyterian church in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, she taught a workshop at the Gospel Coalition's website that the title was, Is God a Misogynist? And I listened to that workshop prior to my message that I prepared for Mother's Day and um, loved what she had to say. She just made so much sense. And I decided to listen to that workshop again today and take copious notes so that I could just about rehash it for you in this uh, episode of our podcast that I also am going to title, Is God a Misogynist? So um, just know that most everything I'm saying, I got straight from her class. So it's almost like I'm doing oral report and all of my research was from her lesson. Uh, Anything that is confusing or off base or silly will be what the Leanne McCoy commentary got added into it. (laughs) And anything that gives you the opportunity to say, oh, now I get it. 
or to shed some light on um, some things that you might be confused about, just know that that came from Mary Wilson herself. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get started. Lord, bless the sharing of this truth and allow us to be able to share it with others as we bump into people who may be extremely confused and even deceived by the lies that are rampant, whose sole goal is to keep people separated from the freedom they can know in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would equip us and give us boldness as we courageously share the truth in our world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First of all, I want to let you know that I'm going to post the link to Mary Wilson's workshop on the Gospel Coalition in the show notes of this episode. So please, if this piques your interest and you want to go there, please go there and listen to her workshop yourself. I I wish I could have had the handouts that she referred to, but... um, uh, I, I don't have that. I, I actually did, though, write down some of the quotes that she was quoting from her handout. So I'll also include those quotes in my show notes for this episode as well. So first of all, I want to talk about um, just the fact that um, some people in the world today will think and maybe even say and challenge you with this. How can you be a woman and be a Christian and serve a God who is a misogynist? Now, I have to um, go ahead and confess to you that a year ago, I did not know what a misogynist was. It's so interesting that just in the past year, this argument has um, gained momentum and come front center in the world that I that I live in, the people that I watch, the things that I'm inundated by. So I, I am confessing that I had to look up the word misogynist, and you may hear it said misogyny. And basically, the word just um, means the mistreatment of women, most likely in the context of men treating women poorly. And so when people accuse God of being a misogynist, I want you to know straight up and right off, that um, the answer to that question, is God a misogynist, is absolutely no, not a chance, not even remotely. And if they're using scripture to try to prove their point that God's a misogynist, then they have um, misunderstood and exposed their own illiteracy regarding scripture and um, handled it without integrity. Now, I know that sounds really strong, but um, and I wouldn't say that if I was talking to somebody, <laughs> but I, I would venture to say there's probably not that many people who are not following hard after Christ listening to this podcast. And if you are, if you are that people, I um, what I just said is true, but I don't want you to feel it like it was a slap in your face because it certainly was not. What I do hope is that you'll continue listening and hear the the truth that will absolutely alleviate any concern in your heart or your mind regarding God and misogyny. I know that for myself in the study of this, 
um, it genuinely gave me an even deeper appreciation of God the Father, the Lord God Almighty, the one who sent his own son to save me from my sins. But it also gave me um, a sense even of more value in who I am in the eyes of the Lord, and therefore what I'm able to contribute in the world today. And so I hope that even if you're not a believer, and if you really do believe that God is a misogynist, and you came over here because of your curiosity in that regard, that you'll continue listening, and that it will result in you feeling the same way that I feel at the outset of of sharing this with you. So, I want you also to understand at the beginning of our conversation, and I'm leading into this just very much like Mary did in her workshop, that some people talk about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament as if there were two different gods. I want you to understand that um, our the God that we follow as Christians is the God of the Bible. The Bible is his revelation of himself. He has supernaturally and divinely given this book to us so that we would have um, a tangible, um, something in our hands that we can read, that we can, um, that we can study, that we can settle into our hearts. It is, you hear the Bible called the Word of God. And it's the Word of the one God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the story that's told in the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation at the very end. And um, every bit of it tells us about the one God that we follow. And so, um, but what people mean sometimes is that the God of the Old Testament can sometimes be seen as a God of wrath and a God of um, powerful vengeance and a God that even can be very barbaric um, in, in those barbaric and those ancient times. And then the God of the New Testament who comes to us in the, in the physical form of Jesus uh, is a God of grace and mercy and unconditional love and sacrificial expression of his love for us. And so um, I like to think of it in terms of the God of the Old Testament is like the lion, the lion of Judah, the one who is strong and powerful and, and uncontested and defeated, the, the victorious warrior. And I like to think of the God of the New Testament as the gentle lamb, the one who was willing to be sacrificed and, um, and taken uh, the sins of mankind on himself and be crucified on the cross. But then I would have to say that both the lion and the lamb have warrior hearts because when a lamb, when Jesus could have resisted the cross and not gone and not died, but he chose to anyway, he demonstrates the strength of his character as well. Now, that God of the Old Testament and that God of the New Testament being the same God, we can look at the scripture and from the eyes of Jesus, we can see that Jesus welcomed women. His own ministry was supported by the financial resources of women who were following him and were a part of um, the the people who got to uh, sit at his feet and, and learn from him and glean from him and then actually be commissioned by him to go and share with others what they had learned and what they had gleaned. Jesus 
Jesus exalted women at every opportunity that he had. He um, healed women. He valued them. And he released them to use their voices just like he does today. We'll talk more about Jesus and women in the upcoming episodes of this podcast series. But there are nonetheless some very troubling passages in the Old Testament, two of which we're going to take a look at. And um, before we do, though, I want to share with you the guiding principles that Mary shared with her audience when she did this workshop. Um, Something that you may not know is that other religions in ancient biblical times either left out women altogether when they spoke of creation or they demeaned the value of women in their creation stories. That was something I learned from Chandelier Chrisman in our episode number two when we discussed the meaning of Ezer Konegdo. And, and so the difference between the other religions of the ancient world and that of um, the Israelites, which is Judaism, the, the precursor to Christianity, is that God gave women and men dominion over all the earth. You can go back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 to read the context of, of this, the basis of what I'm saying. And then God also blessed women along with men. Not only that, but when God made all the parts of creation, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He said, it is good all of those times until he said something about the creation of man. And he said, it is not good for man to be alone. It was the first thing that was not good. But then when he made woman, you know what he said? He said, now it's very good. So you see, even in the creation of women, that God already was giving women um, value and he was uh, giving them authority and dominion. He was blessing them equally with the blessing that he gave to men. Um, So in the Old Testament God, He gave women dignity and worth and value. But there was the fall. We've uh, discussed that, I believe, in our our first episode. And um, the fall distorts the relationship between men and women. And so the way that God made us to be in harmony with each other, the way he made us to fit together, when he said, it's not good for man to be alone, it's very good for this woman now to be connected with this man. What happened after the fall when sin entered into our life's uh, experience is that our interdependent and complementarian relationship with each other was um, was distorted. And it was after the fall that any sense of misogyny came into the world. Here is one of my direct quotes from Mary's workshop that I will include in my show notes for you. And this is what she said. The pervasive sin distortion Brokenness and abuse of power, including misogynistic oppression in our world, are effects of human rebellion against God. The painful situations described in the scriptures relating 
to poor treatment of women reflect the tragedy of human transgression. Therefore, any action God takes to curb and or liberate a person from such sin and brokenness exalts his mercy. In the Old Testament, some things are commanded and some things are described. So um, when God is uh, giving direction to the Israelites as he's forming this covenant community whose sole purpose is to serve as the missionaries for the world, God, do you understand that? God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel so that he could show the world how much he loves us. And so everything that Israel was to be and do as a people, as a nation, was um, missional. It was to be an, uh, an, a living, breathing illustration of, of who God is and how life works when we're in relationship with God. I might add that those of us who are part of Christianity This is our call in the world today, too. The way we live our lives, the way we um, build our friendships, the way we interact with our families, our our husbands. And we're going to talk a lot about the husband-wife relationship in this particular episode. But the way we live is missional. You understand what I mean by that? I mean that people are watching us. And they and if they're watching to see if God is real, if God is good, if God is love, if God is powerful, they're watching to see the impact of God in us and in how we interact and how we live in the world today. And so that was the same point God was doing in the Old Testament was to show um, the world the nation of Israel so he could show what it meant to have this covenant relationship with him. If you've been to Israel today in modern times, you cannot miss the evidence of covenant relationship with God in the nation of Israel. It is, it's everywhere. The, 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 the land is literally flowing with milk and honey in the middle of a desert. <laughs> and not only that, their people are thriving. And so this covenant relationship continues on, and it's very much for us to see and in the people of Israel what it looks like to live. Um, in fact, Mary mentioned the word, the good life. If you want to live the good life, then you ought to be able to look at Christians today and say, oh, that's what the good life looks like. Now, uh I would be venturing into a different subject altogether to give my opinion on how many of us are living or not living up to our missional potential. But let's just land that thought here. And that is that everything that God did in the Old Testament was to set up the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament and to show us today what it looks like to live our lives in and out of having a personal relationship with a God who loves us. And so, anyway, um, what she said was that some things in the Old Testament are commanded. That means that God is um, giving a command. But then some things in the Old Testament are, are described. And 
I like to think of it in terms of this. Like she used the example of polygamy. Some people today who don't know um, the great context of the love story of God will say, good grief, there's so many crazy things in the Old Testament. What about polygamy? Like polygamy is not okay today. And it what made it okay then if it's not okay today? Well, um, it wasn't okay even then. But God did not come to make everything perfect. He didn't interact with Israel to make everything perfect. He came and he interacted with them in the context of their imperfect and sin-stained existence. And he came to, um, to show what m- m- navigating in a world that's broken how best to do that in a way that can bring glory to God, meaning in a way that can um, tell the story of God's love. Does that make sense? I hope that it does. There's a verse in the scripture, I'll look it up and put the reference in the show notes, I believe it's in the Psalms, that says that God stoops down to make us great. And I like to think of that when I think of how um, some things are in the Bible that are very confusing and very difficult to understand, but it's really stories of a perfect God who is um, insisting on revealing himself and connecting himself to a very imperfect people. So God stoops down to make us great. Mary explained to us that there's something called case law in the Old Testament, and this is law that is written to address specific situations, Um, and and she used an example in her own life of um, nieces and nephews of children when they're young and the kind of laws that parents have at certain stages of life, and it made me think of a, a law that could be considered a case law, I guess, and that is that when my little granddaughter, River, who's... Um, seven years old now, when she was little, there was a law when we for River, and that was no biting. That was her law, no biting. Now, of course, River is older, and that is no longer a law that she has to abide by because she doesn't go around biting anymore, thank goodness. So um, Mary went on to say that God's law is perfect. His people are not. That's just re-emphasizing what I was already trying to say and my not as uh, beautiful words as what she used. And she said that God's law is embedded in imperfect situations. That's a good way to say that. And here's a direct quote. I will put it in my show notes. Biblical law, in part, functions to restrain sin within a fallen world rather than to create an ethical system for a perfected, sinless humanity within a perfected, sinless world. I think that is a real kicker of a quote, because what she's saying is that when you read the the strange and unusual laws in the Bible, all of these laws were um, created to restrain sin, not to obliterate it. Because see, God knows that sin will not be obliterated until Jesus returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth. The world has um, is sick. 
with a terminal illness called sin. And it's going to be here until Jesus returns. So instead of trying to create a system, and here, here's the reason I think that many people who might challenge our God and, and specifically challenge him based on these Old Testament passages of Scripture, two of which we're going to look at in a minute, they are coming from a very deceived and false premise that it is actually possible for this world today to be perfect, for humanity to actually live sinless. In fact, some of them who have um, attached themselves to New Age thought are already um, uh, preaching the message that there is no sin, that in fact the only terrible thing in the world today is for anyone to tell you that you are broken, that you have something missing in your life. And so if you're feeling broken or if you are reeling from something that uh, uh, you know is not good, then your way of dealing with it is to call it trauma and do your trauma work. Or they, they also use the word shadow. You do your shadow work in order to... Um, dismiss yourself from uh, that that thing that is um, there because of your connection to either um, past experiences or maybe even toxic people in your present. And so you see what um, the devil's doing in the world today is that he's telling people there is no sin. And in fact, the very worst thing you could possibly do for yourself is to admit that there is because the world is perfect. And so if only you could um, let everybody understand just how perfect it is. And if you could um, uh, disassemble the institutions that have contributed to the pain and suffering in the world today, then um, you you would be able to establish this perfect, sinless world. And in fact, many people are being deceived to think that they can go and do this. The only thing is um, they, don't, they don't really go and do it. What they do is they separate themselves from the world and live um, kind of in buffered in and kind of ignoring the 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 sin that's in the world. What Christianity does is Christianity acknowledges there is sin in the world. Christianity runs to the suffering, not away from it. Christianity goes to the tragedy, not away from it. You see, we we take health care and we take clean water and we take food and, and we take, um, uh, and we take, electricity and we take whatever is needed into the world. We take support and encouragement and mostly we take the beautiful gospel message of Jesus Christ into a hurting world. And that's the way that we bring um, joy and love and peace even amidst the chaos that cannot be overcome. So anyway, um, make sure that you uh, check the show notes to get that quote completely. I'm going to read it one more time because I really love it. Biblical law, in part, functions to restrain sin 
within a fallen world rather than to create an ethical system for a perfected, sinless humanity in a perfected, sinless world. Now, with that, all of that was kind of groundwork, talking about um, these, this overarching way that we must look at the Old Testament in general. Now, I'm going to dive into the two difficult passages that Mary, did I call her Kathy all this time? Her name is Mary. If, I, if I've been calling her Mary, then good for me. So anyway, these two passages are, um, the first one we're going to talk about is Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 through 14. And I'm going to look that up real quick so that I can read it on my, on my phone. If you don't have version on your phone, let me just recommend that you download that free app. And you can have the Bible in whatever translation you want it right there on your own phone. And I'm going to read Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. This is one of these laws out of the New International Version. Um, The subtitle and the scripture that I'm reading from says, Marrying a Captive Woman. And here we go. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage of scripture, I cringed because I was imagining myself talking to people that have challenged me uh, about whether or not God is a misogynist. And I thought I would not know where to even begin to help them understand the truth of this passage of scripture and God actually come out on top. But this wonderful resource I found online has helped me to um, understand and see this passage of scripture without having to compromise or try to defend God in a way that doesn't settle uh, well in my soul. So what Mary said in her um, analyzing this passage of Scripture is three things. One is that this um, law regarding marrying a captive woman points out responsibility versus the rights of the powerful. That would be the husband or the soldier. It, that's number one. Number two, it recognizes the personhood of the vulnerable. That would be the captured woman. And then number three, it's primarily concerned with covenant relationship. And so, first of all, realize that the original audience for which this law was given was um, uh, people living in a time when warfare was prevalent and brutal. It was barbaric. Mary mentioned Amos chapter 1 verse 13, which talks about the soldiers ripping babies out of women's bellies as an example of just um, what warfare was like in this, in this biblical day and time. 
And she also talked about just the the context of the culture and how this law was given within. Remember, God's perfect law was embedded in imperfect in an imperfect world. And where, um, from our perspective, it looks like uh, this poor woman is just um, literally being ripped right out from any opportunity she has to live her own life and has to be taken by an enemy soldier. Perhaps um, it, we would even assume that uh, any kind of um, violence that might have happened could have involved rape or, or whatever. So... When, when we look at this, it's, we have to do our due diligence to nestle it into the reality of that particular world. And what Mary said is that um, this particular law of God regulates the behavior of the powerful. And that was her first point, that it puts responsibility on the powerful being the soldier who actually took the woman. And instead of rights, instead of, well, it's my right because I have defeated you and now you're mine. Instead of that, he has responsibility. And then that responsibility is what we could use the phrase that we coin in our modern day language. His responsibility was to make an honest woman out of her. Then he had to treat her, even though she came from the enemy they had just defeated, he could not treat her as a defeated enemy. He had to treat her as a person who had value and who had worth, who would have the same rights, would be given the same rights as any Israelite woman would have been given. And so... um In the ancient world, when they had this law given to them, they would have completely understood that it was a reflection of God's grace and of his gentleness. And it would have been a reminder to the Israelites that they have been, not only are they chosen and precious in the sight of God, but they've been given the responsibility to live their lives missionally meaning that the way they live their lives is going to demonstrate to others who God is and how he is different in the world and how he is a God of grace and mercy and gentleness and compassion and kindness. Mary's second statement was that um, this particular law recognizes the personhood of the vulnerable, the vulnerable being the woman who was taken captive And so here you have a desperate woman, a woman who has most likely lost all the men in her life. And in that day, men took care of women. They protected, they covered, they provided for, they... um, and, and the way that culture was was lived, it was very interdependent. We've we've grown in our American culture and our modern culture much more independent. I will take care of myself. We don't. We no longer have this cultural reality of um, men providing for and taking care of women, and women receiving that and being okay with living in the vulnerable state that that puts them in. But in that day, women were living very much in a culture that made them vulnerable and dependent on men. And so in a, a wartime situation where your um, your army had been defeated, then you were left without protection. You were left vulnerable to the mercy of the victor. 
And um, not only would you have been vulnerable for protection, but also for provision, because you would not have a, had a way to be, there was no, nothing like an independently wealthy woman. You would have um, all of your economic uh, stability would have been tied up in your family situation. And so this law recognizes this desperate woman that she is lost and that she's lost her family, that she's in need of protection. She has been abandoned or rejected rejected by the God of her people because they just got defeated in war. And so when God gave her the, the month to, um, you know, I don't understand all the specific rituals that were commanded for her to do, but when he gave her that month, it might've been a month to grieve what she had lost and a month to adjust to what had become her new situation. What God's doing is giving her space to make this shift but what's so beautiful about the law that God gave is that she can never be treated like a slave. Never can her victor take advantage of her and and be like this righteous, powerful one that can subdue her. Instead, he has to give her space. He has to give her honor. He has to allow her time to make a transition from her old life into her new life. And um, even in verse 14, when it said that, the phrase, since you have humiliated or rejected her, meaning that if you decided not to have her as your wife, she can still not be treated as a slave in the community. She has to be treated as a member in right standing in the community. Now, as um, kind of grafted in to the Israelite community. Thirdly, Mary made the point that this particular law given by God was concerned with covenant relationships. And um, this, again, is where she made the point that um, this law is allowing the woman to transition into Israelite society before her marriage is consummated with the soldier that took her. And um, in this way, God is guarding Israel's covenant relationship with himself. Um, God consistently in his laws puts um, great um, priority and uh, significance on the covenant relationship of marriage. That anything that destroys the marriage is very destructive to the community. And we're going to see that in a minute in the second difficult passage that we take a, take a look at. But the reason is because God is prioritizing a right relationship with himself. And um, the Israelites, what, and I loved how Mary said this, she said that they recognized that in order to live, and this is what she said, the good life, it would be lived in right relationship with God. And so what is happening in this passage of scripture is that this woman who now does not have a life and is left incredibly weak and vulnerable is given or invited in to remove her garments of captivity and replace them with the protection and the blessing of the Lord in the context of this new um, people group that she would be a part of. And so, um, anyway, I hope that you now see that passage of Scripture very differently than you did when I first read it. Now let me go to the second passage of Scripture, which was Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. 
Let me see if I can find my Bible again. There it is. So I'm looking now at numbers. I'll show you how long it takes me to find it when I'm using my version Bible. Okay, beginning in verse 11, and I'm going to go through 31. This is a long passage of Scripture. Embrace yourself for it because it is one of the difficult passages of Scripture in the Bible. And this is what Numbers um, chapter 5, hang on a second, I went to the wrong chapter. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31 say, and it's called the subtitle in this uh, version Bible I'm looking at says the test for an unfaithful wife. In the version that Mary was reading from, it was the test for a jealous husband. So here's what the scripture says. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man goes astray and is unfaithful, no, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him so that another man has sexual relations with her and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected since there's no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act. And if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he's to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it because it's a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings, you, that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water then that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he's to have the woman drink the water. If she's, been, if she's made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she's made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This, then, is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband. Or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin.
my goodness. This is certainly not one of those passages of scripture that you're going to hear a message on Sunday morning. And it certainly does sound like all the odds are in the favor of the jealous husband and not this woman who's being accused of being impure. And even if she has messed up and committed adultery, this sounds like a severe punishment. Not only that, what about the man that she had adultery with? Why is he not called into account? I mean, there's all kinds of things that we have problems with with this particular passage of Scripture. But let's, let's take it apart. Mary took it apart beautifully and analyzed it and explained it to us in such a way, to me in such a way, that made me realize that God is anything but, that he is in no way demeaning or diminishing the value of women, even in this very strange law that we find in Numbers chapter 5. So what's happening here is that a husband suspects that his wife has cheated on him, and there are no witnesses. And always in the Israelite judicial system, there had to be witnesses to confirm whatever accusation was being made. But in this case, there is no witness, and therefore God himself is saying, I will step in and be the judge. Now, here again is where Mary talked about why adultery is so terrible, and she said that it was to protect the Israelites from defilement. You see, Israel was a theocracy, meaning that they were led by God. Moses was the spokesman for God, but God himself handed down the rules. And um, in order for them to function correctly, they had to abide by God's rules. And so in this situation, God would literally be the judge. He's exercising his theocratic authority over the nation of Israel. And if this woman is innocent, then she will go through this ordeal and nothing will happen to her. But if she's guilty then the very parts of her body that have been defiled now would be cursed. And the curse would be that she would no longer be able to have any children and everybody in the whole community would know that she was guilty and um, that this was her curse to have to bear. So, first of all, this law guards the community from defilement by upholding the marriage covenant. You see, the marriage covenant was so serious to God because marriage is a mirror of what, how God um, is engaged with his church. Our marriages here on earth are the object lesson for the world today of what it looks like for God to have relationship with us, with us um, communally as a people, as the people of God, which we call today the church. So if the husband had a false jealousy, then that could have threatened the wife and the marriage. You see, if he was, if the wife was innocent, but he didn't think she was innocent, then um, that would have an impact on their marriage. And it could have an impact on the wife's physical well-being because men 
in the Middle East, even today, do not treat their wives well. Um, what we call domestic violence, they just call marriage in some places, and God knew this. And so he's protecting the wife by um, declaring her innocence, if indeed she is innocent. And, it, and I wrote here, God is deeply concerned about marriage fidelity because of the missional calling to show the world what our relationship with God looks like. That goes back to that. And so in Mosaic law, men and women are equally responsible to uphold the marriage covenant. And um, what he's doing here is curbing the potential abuse of power by men to wives by taking matters in their own hands. And so, again, this protects the wife as well. So this law that seems so skewed against the woman is actually... Um, protecting that woman against what could be her jealous husband. And it would even also protect that woman from, even if she's guilty, from what her husband might do to her because of her guilt. And so basically the law says um, that it guards the covenant community by protecting the socially vulnerable woman and allowing her to be judged outside of human judgment. You see, she will bear her iniquity. The husband and the priest are going to trust God and submit judgment to him. They're going to go with whatever God reveals when she drinks this um, bitter water. Um, Mary made the point that in similar situations... In the world during that time, this trial by ordeal was um, very much practiced. It was a well-known judicial practice. And um, the, the trial by ordeal was to declare someone's innocence. And in the Code of, Hammur of Hammurabi, um, a, a woman who was caught in adultery would throw herself into the Euphrates River and if she did not drown, then she would be considered innocent. If she drowned, she would be considered guilty. In another um, part of the Hammurabi uh, Code, people were forced to be plunged into a pit of toxic liquid. And if their gods spit them out of the pit, then they would be declared innocent. If the gods kept them then, of course, they would have been guilty. But their lives in both of those situations would have been taken from them. And so um, when you compare what was going on in the rest of the world to what God is directing for the Israelites, you immediately see the merciful handling of the situation because God's not killing the woman She's going to be infertile, and she will be a curse to the community. That's the weight of the sin that she has committed, but she's not going to be dead. And, um, and she's given a, a water to drink that is not going to kill her. So it, it has dust in it, and it has some ink in it, ink that would have been organic, not the kind of ink that would kill her and not in the amount that would kill her. And, and so the punishment was not the natural repercussions of uh, going into a toxic pit or being thrown into a river. The punishment 
had to um, come from a miracle of God. It would be a miracle for her to, to be cursed, and um, it would have been uh, not necessarily required supernatural or divine intervention for her to be um, declared innocent. And so you see how you see how this kind of works. <laughs> this analyzing the scripture and understanding it within the context of the culture, comparing what God is saying to the Israelites versus what is um, the the normal practice in other people that were living at that time. It certainly sheds light on the mercy and the compassion and the grace of God. So, my friends, be educated. Be ready. I believe there's a verse in the New Testament, and I'll look it up and put it in the show notes that says, in season and out of season, be ready to give, um, to, to give a response to the arguments against the gospel. And so I hope that by listening to my podcast today, you know resoundingly well that God is not a misogynist. He is a God who continually makes himself known in the world in both ancient times and today in ways that reveal him as a merciful God, as a compassionate God, as a God who longs to lift up women and, and, to, and to redeem the vulnerable and, and to raise them up into right standing with himself. Our God, who loves us so much, literally gave his own son, Jesus, willingly laid down his life to honor his father and out of love for mankind, for men and women, he gave his life so that we could have relationship with him. Lord, I'm thanking you for this, for this um, message that really came from Mary's workshop. God, I, I thank you that people are speaking to the confusion in the world today. Lord, I invite you, Holy Spirit, illuminate our understanding. Give us discernment so that we can be effective and bold witnesses, so that we can defeat the deceptive schemes of the enemy and allow your truth to continue to penetrate the hearts and the minds of those who have been held captive by darkness. God, we invite you to radically impact our lives so that we will live missionally, so that in our marriages, we will show the world how much you love your church. In our homes, we will show the world what happens in a home that's yielded to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In our workplaces, in our churches, in our communities, oh God, let us be the very best living, breathing illustrations of Jesus in the world today. And where we failed you, Lord, forgive us. We come to you just crying out for your mercy, recognizing that when we fail, when we are greedy, when we are selfish, when we are, um, are so much like the world that we don't look any different, we're not just hurting ourselves, but we are blaspheming you and we are profaning your name. And Lord, we don't want to profane your name. We want to proclaim your name. 
And so we lean into you, Lord, and we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to wash us clean and to make us able to withstand the fiery darts of the enemy and to continue to um, advance the kingdom of love and peace and goodness and light, the kingdom that has Jesus Christ as its crown prince and the Lord God Almighty as its king. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you always have, you do now, and you always will value women. And we yield ourselves to be um, women who reflect your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Prayer Clinic Podcast and that number four in the truth about women. I would love to hear feedback on um, your thoughts regarding this episode. I do want to encourage you more than ever to go check out the show notes, especially since I was teaching from Mary Wilson's workshop. I'd love for you to um, go and, and hear her fabulous teaching yourself. She is just really good on this subject, and I'm sure other people have been great too. Um, I also would love to invite you to connect with me on social media, especially if you have any questions or any testimonies or stories to share. If any of these things are resonating with you, I would love to hear from you. So I'm active on Facebook and on Instagram and um, would enjoy interacting and getting to know you and hearing your thoughts uh, regarding this. So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to check us out at um, prayerclinic.com, my website connected to all things prayer ministry. And then you also can go to my personal website, leannemccoy.com. I will be booking speaking engagements coming up in the, uh, well, maybe not in the fall, but in 2023, um, maybe the fall, you could squeeze some in. I've got a lot of things going on there. You can check out the private retreats I'll be hosting this fall. I blog on both of my websites on the Leanne McCoy site. I blog weekly on the prayer clinic site. I blog twice a month. I am addressing prayer leaders when I blog on the prayer ministry site. Anyway, it's a pleasure to have you with me. I hope if you've enjoyed this um, episode that you'll share it with your friends. And I look forward to um, being with you again next week when we move into episode number five of The Truth About Women.